Father in heaven, God, we call upon your mercies. We call upon your spirit today to be placed and to move in our brothers and sisters who are standing this day, who are who have said, God, I need you today. I, I need your strength. I need your courage. I need your mercy. I need you to carry me during this time. And Lord, uh, you promised us as we call upon the name of the Lord, Lord, that you hear our prayers, you hear our cries. And that, Lord, you heal our diseases, you heal our infirmities. God, I pray this morning, God, for those who need healing physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. God, I pray that you would begin that process even now. And, Lord, as you are working them, would you renew their minds and spirits to let them know that you are there, that your grace is greater, that your peace is made most perfect in our weakness. And so, Lord, I I just pray right now that you would minister strength, hope, and power. Lord, I pray that you would allow them to sense the fact that you were working even now to redeem their situations for your glory. So, Lord, we pray in faith. We pray in need. And we thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you, Lord, that great is thy faithfulness, O God, our Father. And, Lord, we know that all things can work together for good for those who are called according, Lord, to those who are called to you, Lord, and all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to your purpose. And, Lord, so we confess our love for you. We ask, Lord, that you would work and move and have your way in our lives. And, Lord, and until that day you bring us completely out, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our resolve that you would give emotional, mental, and spiritual, physical, and financial support for those who are in need today, God. Thank you that you're working and that you're moving. And we give you praise, not only for what you're doing, but for what you will do and for the testimony of faithfulness that you will provide for your glory in the days ahead. And we ask all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you'll remember, Peter is speaking to those who have been persecuted or soon will be persecuted. To those who are suffering. It is a letter intended to let people know, hey, here's not three easy ways to, to get over it. But let me tell you, it's coming. And let me tell you that God will redeem your suffering and your persecution. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Holy, 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 except it's Holy, H-O-L-E-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and H-O-L-Y. Why Holy, Holy, Holy? We sang that earlier, by the way. Holy, H-O-L-E-Y, because without Christ, as we come to Him, and even in our lives anyway, there, there are holes in our lives. There are holes in our character. There are holes in our spirit. It's how we come to God, full of holes. But what He longs for us to be is wholly His, completely His. And when we can become wholly His, we become holy individuals. You know, that that term right there, I mean, that's just loaded for most people. You know, if you say that word holy, they go, oh, great, yeah. That's what I want to be. I want to be holy. Uh, you know why? Because we have a grossly misinformed understanding of what holiness is, at least biblical holiness. Now, of course, there's the holiness of God. Kadosh, 
the holiness of God where it is pure and majestic. It is beyond comprehension. That's who God is. He is completely pure. All his motives and his ways. His, as Isaiah says, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. It's because he's completely not at the top of the scale, but beyond any kind of scale of righteousness and purity that we could ever imagine. Now, that's God and that's who he is. But for us to be holy, what it means is to be holy his. I grew up in a culture and with a mindset like maybe some of you that holiness was all the things you didn't do. Okay, and and, and there were some really obscure things that you did do. I even went to a church sometimes on Sunday night that was called that. Matter of fact, they would take on the name holiness. We're a holiness church. And what 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 holiness meant or as a kid, this is what I saw holiness was, was women, you don't cut your hair. Men, you do cut your hair short. Heaven forbid you should ever wear shorts, okay, or expose your, your ankles or feet or whatever. Uh, no makeup for the women and uh, no TV, no cards. And, I mean, it was this list of things. And, and yet you stood out, but holiness is not just about standing out. Somehow we've gotten the misconception that holiness means being separated from everyone. And the root Hebrew word does mean to cut, but it's not a picture of us it's completely removing ourselves from society and living in a hole, okay? That's not holiness. Uh, that's being uh, simply uh, just, uh, you know, ignoring, and that's simply escaping. That's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to be holy, His, completely His. And the, the issue is, is that we live in a land today, we live in a country today, we live in a world today, a planet today, that the values and the morals and the principles are often the antithesis of a holy God. So because of that, we are left here on this earth to kind of fend for ourselves and try to make our way. But the, the, the issue is, this is not where our citizenship lies. You see, our citizenship lies in heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth created one day, and everything will be beautiful and is exactly, and even beyond any comprehension that we could ever understand, but exactly is the way everything should be. But until that time's time, we are simply aliens living here on this earth. We're strangers, the Bible will tell us in just a moment, living upon this earth and in this world. Well, with that understanding, we recognize the real truth of it is Christians, and hear me correctly, when we look at this earth, the real truth of it is we're more negative than the average person. You know, and, and hear this correctly. We're more negative in the sense that we look at society and we recognize that we are all degenerate sinners, that we are all morally depraved, that mankind is, <clears throat> and that mankind in his very essence really isn't that good. The truth of the gospel is this, that you are woefully more sinful and more depraved than you ever thought imagined. But we are more loved and accepted by God than we could ever imagine. That's really the truth of the gospel right there. Now, let me give you an example real right here. My wife grew up in Arlington, and my mother-in-law and sister-in-law and father-in-law still live in that area. Matter of fact, uh, my wife's grandfather was pastor at First Baptist Arlington for 25 years and then worked there another 25 years after that before he passed away several years ago. And um, 
many of you have seen this on the news. Uh, uh, Reverend Clint Dobson and his assistant, Julie Elliott, uh, this is a satellite church of First Baptist Arlington where my wife grew up and her grandfather was a pastor. You know the story. Uh, someone came in and brutally murdered Clint and then uh, thought they had probably killed Judy, the, his uh, older assistant. And uh, they didn't know for a while. Now they they found the person and, and the motive, it appears, is robbery. Okay? That right there shows us how depraved the world we live in. And as Christians, we should, we should go, that's right. That's, that's what I'm talking about. As I live here, this is the world that I've been given to exist upon. And man is really that bad. Given the chance long enough and the addictions get strong enough, that's where eventually some people will end up. And, and the truth of it is we all have the propensity in our life to almost go there. Okay, if we start to want something enough, we start to follow our sin nature long enough. Our addictions grow to such a magnitude that that's all we think about. Then we can completely excuse or not even think about what is morally right and acceptable by even what we think human mankind standards are. We can just float right over that. And it just shows where we ultimately will go if we let it go far enough. So on one hand, we're pretty negative about this world. Okay, but on the other hand, we're more hopeful and more positive about life because why? Because we believe that God's going to redeem all things. We believe for Clint's life that one day that he will be reunited with his family, that God will redeem this for crowns in heaven. And although it was not God maneuvering and forcing this to happen, in my opinion, God will redeem this. And so this world is not our home. This is not where we stay. This is not the end. This is only the beginning. Because our citizenship is not here. We, in fact, are strangers. Let me explain that to you real quickly. We're going to see this verse in just a moment here. What does it mean? The word that he uses here in just a moment in First Peter, the word stranger, the Greek word that he will use, uh, actually is one of exiles. Because that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to exiles. Now, when I come, let's say, let's take the United States, for example. When people come to the United States, there's three ways that you can come to the United States. Okay? Number one, we have immigrants. People who say, I'm leaving my country because I want to go to the United States because I want to have a better life. I want to have this type of culture, this type of opportunity. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to work on becoming a citizen of this country because I am willingly and voluntarily coming to this nation. So that's what that's what some people do. Immigrants come and they, they want to be a part of the United States and they go through the process and hopefully they become citizens of the United States and they adopt the full scope of what it means to be an American, okay? So, the number two type person is a tourist. Some people come over here and they just tour around, take pictures, come in big groups. Uh, they see things. They don't, really, uh, they don't really experience the reality, but they're just here to see and to look and to just kind of gaze and, and marvel. And they probably don't really get a realistic impression of what things are really like, but they get some semblance. And so, but they never plan on being here and they, they aren't citizens. But then there's another type person, the exiles. Exiles are people who can no longer go back to their home. Either their home does not exist, it's been taken over, or whatever the case, they've been exiled, and now they've been forced to live in this country because they can't go home. 
But it doesn't mean that they try to accumulate the values. They try to keep their own values, their own heritage, their own culture, so to speak, and live in a nation that's not theirs because they cannot go into theirs, at least not at this time. That's a picture of who we are. We are exiles. We can't go, for the the believer, for the Christian, we can't go to our permanent home, to our real home. We are forced to live in this world until that time comes. So we should not marvel that our values are different, that our uh, our faith and our beliefs are different because this world was never intended to be our final home. Now, with that understanding, let's look at this passage in the book of First Peter, the book of First Peter, uh, chapter one. And give me just a moment while I turn to it myself uh, from the last service here. All right. First Peter, chapter one. Peter is speaking here to the exiles, to those who are being persecuted. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. All right, let's look. As a matter of fact, these are three points that you could literally use as your sermon right here. I could use as my sermon. matter of fact, we talked about a hint of clause last week. It's a purpose clause in the Greek, that word therefore. And he's going to tell you therefore. Here's what I want you to do. And here are the three things. First of all, prepare your minds for action. Your translation, if you have a King James Version, it it may go like this. It may say something of this nature. Gird up your loins. Gird up your loins. Now, what does that mean? Gird up your loins. Well, in an ancient times, almost exclusively, people wore robes. They would wear robes. And um, they weren't like bathrobes, but they they were big robes. And they would wear those, and that's what they would commonly wear, especially when they were out. In society, and if you were going to take any kind of active, uh, if you were going to do work, if you were going to be working hard, if you were going into battle, if you were getting ready to run, what you would typically do is you would take your robe and you would have a belt around you, a sash around you, and you would stuff that robe inside that belt where your legs were showing, and now you were able to run unhindered. You were able to work unhindered. You were able to fight unhindered. So what it is, it's a preparation for action. You are ready to act. And that's what he's saying right here. Peter is, he is telling his people, he is telling Christians, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Have your mind ready. Recognize that this is not your home. This is not your your world. And recognize persecution is coming. I want you to be mentally ready and prepared. And he said, Be self-controlled. Your translation might use the word sober. Be sober. What does sober mean? You know, in our society, it means not being drunk a lot of times. But sober literally means that it means to think clearly. Think clearly. Have a clear mind. Understand where you are. Understand who is with you. Understand what you've been called to do. Be sober. And recognize that uh, as you look at the world and the sinfulness, there's a lot to be negative about. But when you look at the face of Jesus, when you recognize the inheritance that you've been given, that you've been given a hope and you've been given a purpose, think correctly and set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is where I want you to place your hope. This is how you are to look at life. When persecution comes, when hard times come, when troubles come. I want you to remember. I want you to be ready. I want you to know that they will come. 
I want you to be prepared. It won't be an accident. It won't be because you hadn't been being good or you haven't paid your tithe or you didn't go to church last Sunday. Okay? Those times will still come. Number two, I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be sober-minded. I want you to recognize and think clearly and control yourself and recognize that you have been called and that you are my children. You are a child of the King. And I want you to put your hope not in your possessions, not in what you might lose, but I want you to put your hope in the grace and the salvation that Christ has given, in the redemption that He is still working in your life. That's what I want you to do. So, what does that actually look like? Well, let's continue with this section here. Because he goes on and he says, he talks about that, and then he says in verse uh, 14, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's the holiness of God, but I want you to be holy His. When something, God designates something in the Bible as holy, He always designates it in a manner that, all right, this is holy His. When He says the tithe in the Old Testament, when He says the tithe is to be holy, what it means is it's to be separate. It is to be completely His. It is to be devoted to Him. It is to be holy. Completely His. He says, I want you to be holy. You are my chosen children. You are to be wholly mine, and I am wholly yours. The only way you will know holiness is through the person of Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice. When you become holy, my child, then I can see you as holy. And he goes on and he says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We just mentioned what earlier what it means to be strangers. Live your life as exiles here. Recognizing this is not your home and it's never going to be right. You're not going to be able to legislate it. You're not going to be able to uh, administrate it. You're not going to be able to change the world that you live in ultimately. You can make impact, but you live in a fallen and sinful world. But this is not your eternal home. But at the same time, you don't give up the standards of your home. You don't give the values and the faith of your home. You carry that with you. You live that life. And so, what does that mean for us today? I can tell you in the first century, there's a, the epistle of Diognetus is, a, uh, is an ancient document. It's not what we consider Bible or inspired Scripture. But nevertheless, uh, almost all scholars will agree that it's a legitimate docu- document. Uh, it's a true document. And it was a letter written uh, to a, a guy who was in authority in the empire at this point, a Christian explaining, who, trying to explain to him, this is who we are. This, there have been a lot of false accusations, a lot of false information given. Let me help you explain. Let me explain to you who we are. And this is a uh, first or second century document. Uh, most scholars would say it's an early second century, somewhere between 100 and 150 A.D. Some would date it a little later, some dated earlier. Uh, but we know it was somewhere in the time frame of about 100 years after Jesus has died. And so it's the early years of the church. And, it's of course, Christianity has spread at this point. It's probably uh, not long after Peter has written this letter, probably another 50 years after Peter has written this letter, and it's in the height of persecution is occurring. 
And um, this is this is the letter he, he gives to try to explain who Christians are and what they stand for. And the very first one kind of is indicative of the passage of Scripture we just read here from Peter. They pass their day, and he's talking about Christians. This is who Christians are. Let me explain to you who Christians are. They pass their days on earth, but they are not citizens of heaven. Great line there. They pass their days on earth, but they are not citizens of heaven. That's who we are. We just talked about that. We're not citizens here on this earth. We are passing our days on earth. We are to make impact, but we're not citizens here. The old song, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. There's some real truth to that. They marry and have children, but they do not kill their babies. They marry and have children, but they do not kill their babies. Interesting, this is written in the second century. Now, primarily what he was talking about here is in that day, it was very common practice, particularly in the Roman Empire and also amongst the Greeks and amongst all societies. Uh, when you had a certain number of children, you were usually done, and particularly if it wasn't a boy, if it was a girl, they would simply leave them out for exposure to die. If they were deformed in any way, handicapped in any way, they would be placed uh, in dive exposure or something even worse. And that was very a very common practice. But the Christians were different. They didn't do that with their children. Regardless of how many children they had, they didn't kill the babies. They didn't commit infanticide. They didn't let them die. And what's more, they began to see Christians picking up many of these babies that were left out for exposure. There was something different about them because this world was not their home. They had citizenship in heaven. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Common table, they shared of their food, but they never shared their bed with anyone but their spouse. They are poor, yet make many rich. Many of the Christians were very poor. Recognize that they were exiled. They've had to leave, uh, many of them, the majority of them had to leave their homeland and now find uh, work and money for themselves. And many were slaves. May, not all of them in the traditional sense, but slaves nevertheless. So they didn't have much. And they are in lack of all things, yet they abound in all. They lack the material things, but yet they seem to have everything they need. And when punished for his sake, they rejoice as if quickened into life. How do I get to that kind of mindset? How do I get to that place where holiness, being holy is, what can I do to cultivate that today? What were the early Christians doing to cultivate that kind of faith, that kind of commitment? Well, I can give you some biblical principles, some biblical disciplines that they were given that are still available to us today. Now, in themselves, they don't make us more holy. In themselves, they don't make us more godly. But rather, they are tools. They are ways to cultivate, to kind of fertilize the soil, to enrich us. They're called spiritual disciplines. A lot of great books out there. Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline that you can read on this. But let me give you a few real quickly here. And as we come into Lent, I really want to challenge you to consider practicing at least one, if not a few, of these spiritual disciplines. In our church, we, for the next 40 days, we're going to just make a concerted effort uh, to starve our flesh, so to speak, and feed our, feed our spirit. And what I mean by that, we're going to say, God, I, these next 40 days, I really want to 
concentrate on you. I really want to wholly give myself to you. Not that we shouldn't be doing that all the time, but we're going to make an extra effort. And so there's some cards like this in your bulletin. I invite you to just write on there what you're going to do for Lent this year. And you don't have to sign it. You don't have to put your name on it. And we're going to put those on a cross next week. Uh, but you can just drop it in the, uh, once you sign, once you fill it out, you can just drop it in your offering bag as it comes around today. And here's some things you're probably wondering, what, what can I do? Well, there are plenty of things that you could do. Here, let me give you the first one. Let's start with the basics. How about uh, study and prayer? Study and prayer. Maybe what you need to do, maybe you're struggling at this point and you go, I'm just hitting miss, you know, once a week, twice a week. Matter of fact, I'm not even doing it right now. I don't have a time where I consistently sit down and I read scripture and I just pray and I just listen to God. Here's a big challenge for you. What if you committed 10 minutes a day for the next 40 days? Okay, and for those of you who just think that's, I'm just so busy, five minutes. If you can't do five minutes, then go see a psychiatrist, okay? Uh, you need to change your life anyway. You've got major problems, all right? So get up five minutes earlier, go to bed five minutes later, okay? So can you, I would just really challenge you. If this, if, if your citizenship is really not here and you can't do five minutes, guys, that is a big telling sign. I don't want to be a legalist. But if you don't have five minutes for your faith and for Christ, you don't have one. Okay? And I understand you might have just kind of fallen off the wagon kind of deal. I'm asking you to get back on the wagon. All right? It's okay. Some of us are going to fall off every once in a while. Okay? I know some of you are in the wagon. Uh, all right. But you know what I'm saying. All right? So I'm going to ask you, can you commit five minutes? We've got devotionals out there that you can take and read and say, hey, at 10 p.m. to 10.05. Is my time. I know that seems enormous, but I want to encourage you to start there. If you're doing zero, God will be much more excited about zero, I mean about five, than zero. So there's a, a challenge for you. I, I promise you, if, if you're not doing at least five minutes, I promise you, your spiritual life is flat at best right now. Okay? Because all you're hearing is the messages of the world. That's all you're hearing. And it's feeding your mind, and you were not intended to be here. And so there's always going to be a tug and a pull. And if there's not the positive reinforcements of the Spirit of God being entered into your spirit, then you're left in your flesh. And that's when disillusionment, that's when discouragement comes in because you're not drawing upon the mercies and the power of God. So I want to challenge you. Study and prayer. Will you commit five minutes, ten minutes? Maybe you're already doing ten minutes. Will you do twenty minutes? I want to ask you to commit to that. Maybe that's what you put on the card. That's a great place to start. What about... Fasting and frugality. What do I mean by that? Fasting. There's one that we just don't like to talk about very much in our culture today. Yet the Bible is full of passages that talk about fasting. And it's not all from a legalistic standpoint by any means. Jesus says in the Sermons on the Mount, when you fast, indicating that he expected his followers to fast. So here's a time. This may be the only time that you do it this year, but I want to encourage you to fast. Of course, there are multiple ways you can do it. You can do a media fast. Uh, you can do all kinds of fasts. You could do a food fast. And let me just say, I, I really want to challenge you to do the food fast. And I know, I, I understand some of you have medical issues. Some of you are diabetic. Some of you weigh 95 pounds or less or whatever, and you have to eat milk. I, I get it. Most of us don't weigh 95 pounds or less, okay? And most of us aren't diabetics. And yet I always hear that. Oh, I just couldn't skip a meal, Brother Ron. I'd just pass out. I, you know, I just wouldn't be, I won't even be able to work, won't be able to do nothing. I gotta eat. I, I can't miss a meal. No, sir. Oh. You're controlled. 
It's control of you. You know, don't even get me starting talking about caffeine. I'm going to give it up next week. Okay? <laughs> so, I'm just saying, you have to ask the question, what controls my life? Am I ruling that part of my life? Is God ruling through me or is it ruling me? Have I adopted a substance that possesses me? Some of us have. Most of us have. And when you say, oh, I can't do that, that's because it possesses you. Again, this is about feeding the spirit and starving the flesh. There's not a legalistic sticker you're going to get for this. Okay? It's with a right heart. Okay? And I would say, once you do that, take that money and, and give that to a need. Give that to somebody. You know, give that to our clean water for Africa, for our food for Haiti. Think about taking that meal, that money, that 5 or $10 you'd spend a week. And, and for those of you who are Green Berets, think about doing a day, a whole day. Okay? All right, enough about fasting. I'm sure you're starting to glaze over and I'm starting to lose you now. So you think, he's crazy. i got to do five minutes and i got to... Avoid a food. Oh, my goodness. All right. Solitude and silence. Oh, there's something I can do, Pastor, right there. Get rid of the kids. Silence and solitude. That's what I'm looking for. Hey, make it. We've talked about this before. Make your car to sanctuary once you drop the kids off. Say, you know what, God? Each morning when I drop the children off or I'm on my way to work, I'm in the car alone, that's going to be a time where I just turn the radio off, I turn my phone off, and I'm going to pray, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make that my time with you. And uh, I'm going to listen. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk. If you have to, get you a good worship CD and use that the second half. But I'm just going to kind of try to turn some things around. Maybe you don't have that opportunity to be in the car alone. Uh, you can go lock yourself up in your bathroom for 10 or 15 minutes a day, okay? But I just encourage you to have that time where you listen to the Spirit of God. And you're, you're alone and you're silent and you're still. It's a discipline. Service and submission. Where are you serving today? Where are you submitted? You look at Jesus' life. He's called the suffering servant. His life was about serving. Will you commit to serve for the next 40 days if you're not serving anywhere right now? Worship and celebrating, making worship a value for the next 40 days. Now, we can talk more about that, but I'm, I'm going to move on. Uh, we'll talk more about that later on in, uh, in weeks to come. But accountability and confession. Uh, maybe it's time for the next 40 days where you just make yourself accountable to someone. Say, you know, here are the things I need you to pray for me about. And keep me accountable. Here's a commitment that I made for Lent. Would you ask me about that? Ask me about how I'm doing as I, in my spiritual journey and my faith. And giving and sharing. It's <clears throat> sharing of our faith. Making the next 40 days a time where we say, you know what, I'm going to share of what God's doing in my life. I'm going to share of the good news. I'm going to be willing to give financially. I'm, I'm going to say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to quit worrying about my finances and getting stuck on myself. And I'm, I'm going to start giving. And this is the amount I'm, I'm going to start. It may not be where I want to end, but I want to start. <clears throat> you know, it's easy to just blow all that off and say, oh, it's just a bunch of legal. I live by grace. But you know what? We were saved by grace to do good works and to feed the Spirit of God, to be transformed and to become wholly His. And that's a way to cultivate. It's a way the ancients have done it for thousands of years, how they become wholly His. And when we hear about people who have an extraordinary faith, when we read passages of Scripture, we go, how can I do that? Let me tell you this. I can almost always trace it back that one of the components are going to be people who are exercising the disciplines of the Spirit. Here's 40 days to begin and to renew. So I encourage you to consider doing that and being a part of that. Um, I want to close 
uh, with this illustration from the Scripture. Uh, and we, we did Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, for several months. But this is a story that we didn't read that I've always found interesting. And it goes like this. Is David is, he's just taken office. I mean, most scholars believe that he's just kind of taken kingship uh, after right after Saul has, has uh, been killed. The Philistines have just won that battle. And, and the Philistines are coming in there. They're trying to get to the Israelites. They're trying to get to David before he consolidates his kingdom. And so uh, they've already taken over the area of Bethlehem, which, of course, was David, David's homeland in his area. And so David's in the wilderness area. And uh, he's gone out there with some of his men. And that's kind of where we pick up. The Philistines are after him, and he's hiding out. And he's waiting to kind of consolidate things and put things in order while the Philistines have, again, come in over and taken over Bethlehem. And during the harvest time, three of the 30 men, the chief men, came down to David to the cave of Adullam. And while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, at the time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from a well near the gate of Bethlehem. So they, so three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. You know, this is really just kind of a wild story when you think about it. David is out with some of his men in the wilderness. And David walks out one day. They're in the wilderness and he's thirsty. He's hot. It's dry land. And he says, oh, how I wish I had a drink of water from the wells of Bethlehem. He's just just kind of floating it out there, probably not even thinking, is anybody listening? He's just stating kind of that desire, like some of you go, oh, I sure could have, I sure could go for Starbucks or whatever it is that you want to go for. And um, he just kind of says that. And these men hear it. And so what they do is really pretty amazing. The three of them take off. And they go through enemy lines. They go up a hill to Bethlehem. And as a matter of fact, they've gone through the desert, and then they go up a hill to Bethlehem. And they go to the well that the Bible says is right there next to the gates of Bethlehem that certainly would have been guarded. They probably did it at night. They probably had to kill someone or fend somebody off in order to get that water. Then they take it, and they walk back through the desert, back through the enemy lines, and come back to David. And if you saw it on a map, it's, it really will behoove you the, the distance. It's it, at probably a minimum of 20 miles they've gone to get this and through enemy lines. And they come back and they give David this water. Holy cow. Wow. You want to know what a picture looks, a picture of being holy his looks like? There's a picture of being wholly devoted to someone. Wholly devoted. Here's how you know. When someone, their desires is just as strong and significant as the command. David didn't say, I command you to go get me a water. Or if anyone would like to volunteer to go through enemy lines and risk their life and come back and bring me some water, I would sure be appreciative. He didn't say any of that. He wasn't expecting any of that to happen. But you know what those men, they saw that it was a desire of the king's heart. When we begin to see God in light of that, that His desires are just as compelling 
as his commands. Let, let me give you the opposite. Sometimes people will say, you know, how much do I have to give here at church? Like, what do I need to give? Like, is it the 10%? Is that what I'm supposed to be given? And by the way, is that net or is that gross? And does that, what is it, does this count? Does that count? And what's the, what is the minimum that a Christian has to give? That's the wrong question, okay? That right there is the command version, all right? What being holy is, is this. What can I give? That's the way David's men were responding to him. What can we give for the king? What can we do for the king? There's the mentality that, it, that, that is being expressed here to be holy his. If he has a desire, then I want to accomplish that no matter the cost. And then the next part that happened, which always disturbed me as a child, because no one really explained this to me. But it was interesting. Here's what happened. After they have fought through the lines, after they've walked through the desert, after they've gone to Bethlehem, after they've gotten the water, come back through the desert, come back through the enemy lines, and brought this water to David, what does he do? What would you think he'd do? Think, oh, thank you so much! That's not what he does. But he refused to drink it, and instead... He poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? They took that enormous risk. They brought it back to David and David goes, what? I am behooved at a minimum. I cannot take it. You've risked your very lives for me just so I could have a, a taste of water, just so I could get the brand of coffee I wanted to drink. And he took it and he poured it out. I'll tell you why I think he poured it out. Because David recognized that kind of devotion should only be given to Yahweh. That you would be able to give your life to, my, to the least of my whims, of my desires, that kind of devotion can only go to God Almighty. Someone who is wholly His. I cannot be your God. You cannot give me that kind of reverence. And so the Bible says He poured it out as an offering to God. Because He realized what it cost. You know, here's the picture though, guys, for us. God loved us so wholly that He did this. That he sent his son through the desert, up the hill, to the city. And he not only risked his life, he not only risked his blood, he willingly died and gave his blood upon the cross. So that we might be made holy. So that we could be holy. His through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we commit our lives in Him. He redeems us so that we might be made holy. And when we grasp that fact, when we hold on to that, then we begin to understand what holiness really is. What God really desires of us. Verse 21 says, Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him so that your faith and hope are in God. Are you holy His today? If you would, I want you to prepare your hearts for communion as we come to the table of the Lord.
as we consider one who wholly devoted himself to us. Who came to this earth and walked through the desert, through the wilderness. Who walked through enemy lines. Who gave himself, who suffered and died and gave his very life, shed his very blood so that we might be forgiven. So that we might have the greatest wish and desire of our heart, which is to know God and to be wholly His. Is the greatest purpose for which we exist to bring glory to God. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never been forgiven. Maybe you've never committed your life wholly to Him. I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus. To say, yes, I'm ready to give my life wholly to Him. And Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for the holiness that You've provided, not through our own efforts, not through our own deeds, but what You have given to us on the cross. And so, Lord, everything we do is a thank You. I pray that You help us to cultivate the disciplines of the Spirit into our lives so that we might be wholly Yours. Lord, as we receive of the bread and of the cup, let us be reminded of the One who gave Himself, who sacrificed Himself, not just for earthly water, but that we might have living water. We give you praise in the name of Jesus.